After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one who works in secret, or no one works in secret, if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, if I haven't met you before, my name is Andrew, and I am the campus pastor at our Leewood campus. And uh, so usually I'm there, but it's a real joy to be with you here this morning. And what an awesome update from your team that just went to Columbia. I'm glad I got to see that. So uh, even if you knew who I was, we don't know each other really well. So we're going to play a little game together that I played when I was growing up. Okay, you're going to love it. Uh, there were different versions of this game uh, that uh, we did as I was growing up, but the gist of it was always the same, and here's what it is. I'm going to ask you, if you could live in one of these places, which one would you live? Okay, I'm going to list them out. Think about what your answer is, okay? So if you could live in one of these places, which one would it be? Would you live in the mountains? Would you live on the beach? Would you live in the forest? Or would you live in the desert? Okay? So think about your answer. Don't overthink it. It's okay. You guys look concerned right now. It's fine. Just, it's, it's not a test. All right. So uh, now, raise your hand when I ask. So who said mountain? Okay. Who said beach? Who said forest? And who said desert? Anybody say desert? Yeah, see, there's always... It's okay. It's all right, but it's true that there's always one weirdo who chooses the desert, and now we know who it is. Uh, listen, the desert is a beautiful place, but there's a reason why in every movie when you, the hero ends up in the desert that you're always afraid, oh, this is where they die because deserts are where there's no water, there's no food, there's no shelter, and you know there's always the shot of the vulture circling overhead. The desert, in, at least in our imagination, tends to be a dead place. Like I said, it can be pretty. It has, it has a beauty to it. But you stay there long enough, and your skin starts to feel like sandpaper, and your tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth, and you're like, why didn't I choose the beach house when I had the chance? And here's, the, I think, the real proof of this. So if I change the question, so if I don't ask you uh, where would you live if you could? But I asked you, 
if someone were to describe you and your life as one of these places, which one would you want them to pick for you? Would you want to be a mountain? Do you want to be a beautiful ocean beach? Would you want to be a lush forest? Or would you want to be a desert? And see here, no one would want to be a desert. No one wants people to think of them as a dry, dead ocean of sand. It's like, yeah, when you think of me, I hope that you think of the Sahara Desert. Why do I bring all that up? Well, in our text today, John, who wrote this gospel we've been in these these, uh, last few weeks, he's asking us a version of this question. He is saying that most of us, most human beings, when it comes right down to it, are living desert lives. Our lives feel pretty fragile, they feel pretty dry, pretty scary, and sometimes they feel downright lifeless. And John is saying, what if you could have overflowing life? What if you could have that instead? What if you could have gushing river life, even though you may feel like a dry, dead desert right now? This is Jesus' offer to you. We've been hinting at it all morning long. This is Jesus' offer to you, living water. Would you take that offer, which we just heard in verse 38? Whoever believes in me, says Jesus, as the scripture has said, out of his heart flows rivers of living water. So how do we get that? What what does that require? And our story today, we're going to look at a lot of chapter 7 here. In its own way, it shows how different people come in contact with Jesus and respond to his offer. Now, most of these are desert responses. That's what I call them. They do not lead to life. They are not good responses to Jesus. But one of them can lead even a desert life into an overflowing life. So I want us to take a look together. So if you have a Bible with you, whether it's in paper, it's on your phone, doesn't matter, turn to the book of John. So it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the fourth book in your New Testament. Chapter 7. We're going to be in that chapter today. So Jesus, if you remember, uh, throughout this uh, series in John, uh, and just right back in chapter 6, Jesus has had a really hard moment. He said some really difficult things, and, in lo- and because he said those things, he lost a lot of his followers. That was in chapter 6. Now in chapter 7, he's wandering around in Galilee. So Galilee, uh, you'll notice, is that yellow area up there in the north. This is where Jesus is from, and many of his disciples are from Galilee. This is Israel at the time of Jesus, by the way. And he won't go down to Judea, that orange part near the bottom. Because, John points out in verse 1, the Jews wanted to kill him. Now, just a reminder, whenever you read John's gospel and he talks about the Jews, he can't just mean ethnic Jews because everyone in his gospel is basically an ethnic Jew. So what he means when he says the Jews is the religious authorities, who for the most part lived and worked in Judea and Jerusalem. So the the religious authorities want to kill Jesus, and Jesus knows this. So now, Jesus is teaching in Galilee, up north, and John tells us that at this time, the Feast of Booths is approaching in Jerusalem, okay? Now, the Feast of Booths, if you're not familiar, was a huge holiday. It was a huge celebration for the Jewish people. In particular, it was a reminder of God's leading of his people in the wilderness after the Exodus, if you remember God rescues his people from Egypt. 
He leads them through the wilderness to the promised land, and he provides for them along the way. This Feast of Booths is a, a remembrance of that time. And it's, in some ways, it's like the Christmas of the Jewish people. It's huge. Uh, they would build little tents throughout Jerusalem, and they would light lights, and they would do all kinds of festivities for a whole week. It was really, really fun. Everybody wanted to go. And in particular, if you could, you wanted to celebrate in Jerusalem. You wanted to go to the holy city. So it was packed in Jerusalem at this time. But Jesus wouldn't go. And now we get to our first response to Jesus, and it's, it's from Jesus' own brothers. So this is verse 3. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, depending on your familiarity with the, with the New Testament, uh, this may surprise you, but Jesus had brothers and sisters, half-brothers and sisters. Uh, some of them are actually named in Mark chapter 6. We learn a few of them there. One of them is named James, and we know from the book of Acts that he later becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he wrote one of the letters in your New Testament now called James. But for, for whatever reason, uh, it's clear pretty much in all the gospel accounts that Jesus' own family, in particular his siblings, did not respond well to him early on. They did not follow him. They didn't believe. And they're, they're, they're outright disappointed in him here. They know that he's just lost a ton of followers in chapter 6, and they think that he's being a wimp for not going to Jerusalem, to the festival. They think, man, if you're, Jesus, if you are who you have said you are since we, you could talk, go prove it in Jerusalem. Okay, stop wasting your time up here in Galilee. A real Messiah would strike while the iron's hot, while everybody is in the city. So here's our first point, is that a desert life wants Jesus to be more impressive. That's how I would summarize what the brothers are doing here. The brothers are unimpressed by him. His strategy, his track record from a human perspective is disappointing. He's lost a ton of momentum. Lots of people have walked away. And now he won't capitalize on this moment in Jerusalem. I liken it to uh, like a politician who's just had a really bad moment go viral online. So he's got like the bad press of that. And then won't go stump, uh, stump speech at the state fair. It's like one bad decision after another. And his brothers are giving him a hard time about it. They're saying, boo, Jesus, be more impressive. Do something. They want more popularity, more people, more miracles, more fireworks, more, more, more. They don't like his timing. They don't like his strategy, and so they don't like him, and so they don't believe in him. That's the idea. And the desert life can get stuck on how impressive or unimpressive Jesus looks from our perspective. It gets caught up in that. It gets caught up in things like human power and wisdom and politics to accomplish God's will. This is the desert response that says, listen, Jesus, I like you, but if you just, if you just did what I said, you could actually get something done. You could actually do what you claim you want to do. Just listen to me. And Jesus will say no to that. No. He won't be manipulated. He won't be cajoled. 
because he knows that his father's timing is more important than our human strategy. Okay, that's what he says in verse 8, essentially back. He says, you, my brothers, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. He's on a completely different schedule, completely different strategy than what his brothers want him to do. His father's timing is more important than his brother's opinion. And we can get, like I said, we can get stuck in that. I mean, it, it shouldn't, it probably isn't hard to think of a time where you've uh, been uh, disappointed because you've wanted something from Jesus. You wanted him to do something or say something or change something, and then you were left underwhelmed or unimpressed. His strategy, in your mind, whatever he's up to, was not what you wanted. It was inexplicable and maybe even like counterproductive from your perspective. But for an overflowing life, okay, this is part of what John's hinting at, our faith has to be bigger than our ability to always know what Jesus is up to. Our faith has to be bigger than our ability to understand everything Jesus is doing at every given moment. Because there are times where he's not going to make sense to us. He's going to do things that don't add up to us. Okay? Our faith has to be bigger than anything human power and authority and planning can actually accomplish. It has to be bigger than that. And the, the brothers, they can't, they can't do that. They don't see that. And because of that, they don't believe. And they get stuck in this desert response to Jesus. Okay? But eventually, Jesus does go up to Jerusalem for the festival, and John tells us this in verse 10, that his time does come, but notice he goes now in private. He doesn't go in public like his brothers wanted him to, and uh, John tells us that everybody's looking for Jesus in Jerusalem during this feast. They've heard about this guy, this preacher from up north, and they've heard rumors like this guy fed over 5,000 people with nothing but a loaf of bread and a couple of fish. This guy's healed people, He's done incredible things, but this is also the guy that says crazy things about himself. You know, I heard he said he's better than Abraham. I heard he, he says he's better than Moses. And there's all kinds of opinions and rumors floating around Jerusalem about Jesus, who he is, and what he's like. Some of them are really good. Some of them are bad. John gives you some of that in verses 11 and 12, kind of the, the back and forth. But everybody's being very careful who they talk to about Jesus, because even they know that the religious leaders are after Jesus, and they don't want to come across like they're supporting this guy, like they're public enemies. So this is all going on, and then about halfway through the feast, Jesus breaks his silence. This is verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now, the Jews, okay, remember, these religious authorities, they marvel at Jesus when they hear him. These guys, remember with me, they, these, these religious teachers have spent years, all of their lives, training, studying, arguing with a, under the tutelage of a rabbi every single day in order to teach. That was the training process. They never stop reading, learning, or training around Torah, around the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament. They have prepared their whole lives to speak like this in the temple. And then along comes Jesus, 
this absolute nobody from Galilee. He's got that hick accent. Okay, he sounds different because he's from up north. He has no pedigree. He has no formal training. He's on their turf trying to win their people over to his message. And they marvel at him. They can't believe he talks so good when he didn't do his book learning with them. They marvel, but they don't listen. They don't listen to a word he says. All they can think is, this guy isn't qualified. Not qualified. He lacks the certification. He lacks the credentials to tell anyone anything about God, about spirituality, about life and death and all. They can't even begin to accept Jesus' offer of life because they don't like his resume enough. They immediately dismiss him because the desert life wants Jesus to have better credentials. This is the second response. Desert life doesn't start, for example, with Jesus' life, his miracles, his teaching, his understanding. It starts with his bona fides. And when it finds them lacking, it moves on. It may even marvel at Jesus from afar, but it never believes in him, never gets personally invested with him, because Jesus doesn't check all the boxes. Now, we too can get stuck on Jesus' resume. And I would say this is especially true for those of us who may be here this morning who are interested in Jesus, who maybe know a thing or two about him, but we aren't convinced yet about who he is. And Jesus from afar can seem unappealing. He doesn't sound certainly like one of us. He's not a scientist with proofs and lab results. He's not a psychologist telling us how to you know, improve our self-image and to, to find our true self. And he doesn't talk like our teachers do, like our communicators do. He's never published a book. He's never started a podcast. He's never won an Oscar. He's never scored a touchdown. He doesn't do the things that our heroes and teachers do. His accomplishments and his credentials may not look like much from a modern perspective as we approach this book, but he can make people whole. And this is where Jesus goes in verse 23. He addresses these religious teachers, these religious leaders, who are saying, Jesus, you aren't qualified to say what you're saying, for us to listen to you, to take you seriously. And Jesus basically says, you're mad that I don't teach and communicate like you. You're mad even that I teach something about the Sabbath that's totally different than what you and your forefathers have taught. That's a huge controversy between Jesus and these teachers that if you've been reading through John, you know has already happened. But Jesus references a time he healed a man for decades who couldn't walk on a Sabbath day. He healed him like that. And he says, I made a man whole. Isn't that enough for you to take me seriously? Is that not enough? Don't you believe I can do the same for you? And the tragedy is that these religious leaders, they look at Jesus and they hear his offer and they basically say, eh, pass. You have nothing, you have no authority to speak to us. Right? Desert life, it can't get past Jesus' credentials far enough to hear his offer of life. 
And the real tragedy of these people is that no matter what Jesus says or does, they will never get over that he isn't one of them. And because of that, nothing can grow in their lives. And they will remain the same dry desert they were when Jesus found them. And again, we can marvel at Jesus, but keep him at arm's length and miss out on the life he comes to offer. And there's still yet another danger in how we respond to Jesus. So Jesus, he finishes this argument with the religious teachers, and, but everybody in the temple heard, right? This was a public debate. So everybody in the temple heard this conversation, and now everybody's talking about it. And people are, again, they're all over the map on who Jesus is. Listen to verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Now, these folks, you can tell they're, imp they're impressed with Jesus. He's done enough, certainly, to get their attention, and they're listening to him. They aren't concerned with his pedigree like the teachers are, but there's still a problem. Okay, this is verse 27. Here's what they say. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, apparently, there was a rumor floating around in Judaism at this time that when Messiah came, when the promised one came, the deliverer came, nobody would know where he came from which sounds kind of silly to us now, I know, but there you have it. So some of these people have a preconceived idea about Messiah, about who Jesus should be, and they can't square it with who he actually is. It's like they're saying, man, Jesus is so impressed. I've never heard anyone teach like him. I've never seen anyone do what Jesus can do. But isn't he from Galilee? Isn't he from Nazareth? We know Messiah can't come from there. Therefore, it's an automatic no. Now, my, my hunch is that there's probably no one here this morning who has a serious problem with Jesus because of his hometown. It's just not our question anymore, right? But the same dynamic can be at play in our response to him because a desert life wants Jesus to meet our every expectation. Our expectations may be different, but this, this pattern can be the same. We may be willing to listen to him, to consider him. But if Jesus doesn't check every box on that list, we're out. It's an all-or-nothing proposition with him. And usually this means that we're, what we're really interested in is finding a Jesus, finding a Messiah, finding a Savior who's exactly like we are. Jesus, we want a Jesus who thinks the way that we do, who spends his time and his money the way that we would, votes the same way, loves the, same, loves the people we love, hates the people that we hate, our friends are his friends, our enemies are his enemies, and on and on that list could go. And if the real Jesus attempts to challenge us or change us or confront us or disappoint us, it's like, well, it's time to look for another Messiah. Because we know that the real Savior would have the exact same opinion on everything that we do. Now, when I say that out loud, and you hear it, it sounds crazy, right? It's like, I wouldn't do that, but be honest. When is the last time Jesus disappointed you, changed your thinking, changed your opinion, and you allowed that to happen? <laughs> Think about that. 
We, and we, we, in our sermon on, on chapter 6, which I don't actually, I think you, Paul did that here, but in our sermon on chapter 6, um, we talked a little bit about this. But if that never happens, if Jesus can't confront us at all, we end up with a Jesus that maybe we've always wanted but can't do a thing to change our desert lives into anything resembling living water. We get a Jesus that we're very comfortable with but who has no power or authority to do anything with our lives. And we're all, we're all more than capable. I mean, we could, these, we could go on and on with these lists of traps we can fall into with Jesus, and we're all more than capable of succumbing to them, just like these contemporaries of Jesus did. We can find ourselves unimpressed with Jesus' strategy of meekness and forgiveness and sacrifice and grace. Instead, we can say, no, you know, we really want winners who know how to play the game. We can dismiss Jesus because, man, who worships and follows some guy who lived 2,000 years ago? That's weird. We know more than he ever did, and his message is outdated, and he's uneducated, and his credentials don't add up. We can get frustrated with Jesus when he doesn't, uh, he keeps failing our expectations. He doesn't make us feel as good as we thought that he would. We're not as validated as we thought we should be. He isn't who we predicted he would be, so it's time to move on. We can even talk a lot about Jesus and admire him from afar, like some of these folks do, but never believe in him and never receive anything from him. Now, with all that in mind, okay, think about all these responses that Jesus has encountered. Imagine now, from his perspective, what he feels in this moment. After all these frustrating conversations and all these crazy ideas about who he should or shouldn't be, remember, here he is at this feast. Remember, a feast about God's provision in the desert. It is a feast that celebrates the time where God gave his people food and water in a place that should have killed them. A desert. And Jesus is like, I'm the, I'm the bread. I'm the bread. I'm the water. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. You can almost hear his anguish in that moment at the end of this feast. It's like, just believe in me already. Jesus is imploring them. He's like, listen, we, we can deal with the disappointment and the credentials and the expectations later. We can. But we cannot deal with any of that. Until, and you'll never understand who I really am or how I work, or where I'm actually from, until you begin to believe in me. You have to take a step. And this is a foundational starting place for the overflowing life. This is the source of the Nile. This is the head of the river. And it's so incredibly simple sounding, and yet so elusive for so many of us, which is this, the overflowing life believes in him. If you want to be a river, Jesus says, it has to start with belief. Whoever believes in me, 
can overflow with life-giving water. Now listen, belief is more than intellectual agreement. It is more than checking the Christian box on the census form. What we cannot do is hear Jesus here and think Jesus means we just need to believe that he exists, but never actually do anything he says, but never actually listen to him, to never train with him in all things. That's not belief, and it's another desert life. Belief in the Bible all throughout is active. If you believe something, you build your life on it, you trust it, you submit to it, you accept it. And most importantly, for our purposes today, belief knows that we cannot be anything but a desert until Jesus helps us. It is completely up to him. No amount of earthly power, human strategy, pedigree, education can turn a desert into a garden. It's a miracle or it's nothing. There's no in-between here. When Jesus asks us to believe in him, He is asking us to believe that he and he alone can do what none of us can do on our own. He says, come to me. Bring your thirst to me. Come with your loneliness. Come with your lack, your inadequacy, your sin, your desperation, your shame. Don't pretend you have it all figured out with me. Come to me with your need, open-handed, open-minded, asking for help. And you know you're in this place. <laughs> you, you have to know your need before you will accept what Jesus offers you. You have to know your need before you can accept what he comes to give you. Because think about it. When you're, if you are lost in a desert and you're dying of thirst and you know it, you're wasting away every day. And Jesus walked up to you. He found you in the desert with a glass of water. You know what you wouldn't do? You wouldn't ask for his credentials. You wouldn't say, are you qualified to help me and save my life? You wouldn't be worried about where Jesus came from or whether he fits your expectations or not, and you certainly wouldn't ask him to prove that what he's brought to you is actually water. What would you do? you would drink. You would drink. And when you do, when we come to Jesus, desperate and thirsty, drinking deeply of his love and his beauty, we begin to experience an overflowing life. This is the beginning. And I love this image from Jesus. This is not a reservoir, it's a river flowing out of us, actually, to everyone around bringing life to dead, dry places. And John goes on and he connects this promise from Jesus to the coming of the Holy Spirit, that we have God's Spirit of like a river of life when we believe. And and where John's going to go now for the rest of this gospel is to show us exactly the kind of life-bringing people that we, by God's grace, can actually become when we believe but it has to start with belief. It has to start with belief. It has to start in humility and ignorance and brokenness and sin. It begins by coming to Jesus empty-handed, 
and asking him to take our dead, dry lives and to do something impossible with them. To make a way when we do not see a way to give life where we have only ever found death. To make a desert into a living, breathing, overflowing river. Which starts with Jesus who says, this is my body broken for you. Okay? This is where belief starts. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Jesus says, if you can believe that my death and my resurrection are for you, in your place, if you believe that, there's nothing I cannot do with your life. Which is why for those of us who follow Jesus, we, we, we remind ourselves regularly in the practice of communion at the Lord's table to put our trust in Jesus' sacrifice alone. We believe in him and we trust that he can make us into something beautiful together. But if you're here and you have not yet believed in Jesus the way that I'm describing, uh, I first of all want to say thank you for being here. Thank you for trusting us enough to, to try this. And I want to encourage you not to participate in the Lord's Supper, if that's you. We love that you're here, seriously. And you honor us uh, this, by honoring our tradition, that this is for followers of Jesus only. And if that's you, stay where you are during this next moment. That's okay. Consider what you've heard. Maybe pray to God. Ask Him to reveal to you what He wants. For those of you who have followed Jesus, I'm going to pray here in just a moment. And then I'm going to invite you to receive communion together. There are two tables here in the back. Whenever you're ready, you can approach. There will be someone there to serve you. All of our elements are gluten-free. But what I, want to what I want to encourage you to do is when you're ready, when you approach, I want us to take this moment as a reminder that without Jesus, we have nothing. We bring nothing. We do nothing. We offer nothing. But with him, we have everything. And more than simply filling our every need, which he does do, more than that, we can actually become an overflowing people who bring his life wherever we go. So as we prepare our hearts to receive, let's pray together now. Father, as we come to your table... I pray for each one here that whatever distractions, heartaches, disappointments, doubts, fears, shames, desperations, whatever it is that we brought here with us today, give us strength, Father, not to hide those things from you and to, to try to make ourselves worthy of your table because we aren't. Instead, Father, help us bring those things to mind even now the things we don't want to talk about, the things we don't want to talk to you about, the things we think make us unlovable, unacceptable, bring them, Holy Spirit, bring them to mind. And as we approach your table, we approach with them because we know we're a desert. And as we receive and remember from you exactly who we are, make us remind us once again 
that rivers of life flow from us, not because of who we are or what we do, but because of you. Jesus, we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.